1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Let's all stand as we take a look at it. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Silvanus is the full form of the name Silas. And since no other person we find in the Bible is mentioned in the New Testament other than the Silas we're most familiar with, we assume it's the same one who traveled with Paul. Silas was the one who sent the letter to the Jerusalem consul in Acts 15. And it was to settle a divisive issue between Jews and Gentiles. Silas was the man who traveled with Paul to Syria after Paul refused to travel with John Mark. Silas joined Paul at Thessalonica in Acts 17, and there Paul preached at the synagogue, and a mob of Jews gathered together to cause harm to Paul and Silas. And Silas went with Paul to Berea, uh, and they had a friendlier reception until the mob from Thessalonica came to Berea as well. They sent Paul ahead to avoid the trouble. And Silas stayed at Berea. And in Acts 18, uh, Paul was met in Corinth by Silas and Timothy. And in 2 Corinthians 1.19, we read this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, uh, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. And Silvanus uh, or Silas is also with Paul when he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now, Acts 16 records quite an adventure when Paul and Silas were a singing duo for hymns while they were in jail. It's worth reading this because I think it's a fantastic passage in Acts 16. So if you'll be patient and listen along. Now, remember... Acts is a historical account of the early church. It was written by a doctor who was very detailed. So I think we can take confidence that this is actually what happened. We read this. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. After midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a story. What a story. You know, with all the sermons that we hear today, it's rare that we ever hear about Silas or have a sermon on Silas. But when one puts him under a microscope, what we find is a faithful servant of God who was willing to endure with joy in the midst of suffering. Ask Paul, and I'm sure he'd agree with Peter that Silas was a faithful brother, and he should be held in high regard. In addition, he either helped Peter write this epistle, or at least he delivered it. In Silas, we see a man content to serve in the background so long as God's work was done. It was enough for him that he worked alongside Paul, even if Paul overshadowed him. It was enough for him to be Peter's scribe, even if it meant only a bare mention of his name at the end of the book. The letter, or the church, excuse me, is filled with people like Silas, is it not? People who are in the background, working hard. And we might call these people, you know, workers in the background or second fiddle or helpers. But here's what the Bible calls them. Faithful, beloved, brother and sister. Paul said this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. 
And later in the same chapter, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You know, last Sunday, we enjoyed a wonderful harvest fest. And there was a whole cadre of Silas-like people who made it happen, thanks to Luke and Dana's leadership. So I just want to say thank you to all of those who helped to make that happen and for being like Silas. Great job. We also see in this verse the commitment to unshakable grace. Now, there can be no doubt of the reason that Peter wrote this book because he says it, all right? He's encouraging and challenging the the church to know true grace and then to stand in it, okay? Now, we spent considerable time talking about the beauty and the power of God's grace. We talked about his unconditional promise to us to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and establish us. Let us acknowledge, and any of us who've grown up in church for a period of time, we know that there's a big difference between grace that is talked about and then a grace that is lived, right? There's a grace in word only where performance is your only confidence, not Christ. There's a kind of grace that brings fear and then a kind that rests in the finished work of Christ. There's a kind of so-called grace that has little confidence and the kind where faith is built upon the rock of Christ. So be able to distinguish true grace from another kind. Then stand fast in it. Now, why is this important? It's not for theological nitpicking. It's not for arguing. As much as we spend on trying to explain a verse and God's unconditional promise under the covenant of Abraham, it's not for the purpose of just, you know, distinguishing ourselves from this guy or that guy, but it's so you can have confidence to walk in grace, that you can stand firm in it and not waver. It's for the purpose of living in a sure foundation. Don't let go of grace. It is, it is God's present to us daily that in all of human experience, it's woven throughout our life, not just with a nice verse, but the realization that God has us. It's a wonderful thing. Ray Ortland writes this. 
Listen closely. We were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weakness. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was, he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. We didn't. Because we couldn't. Then, Mr. Law died. And we remarried, this time, to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening. And the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove. Still, he sweeps us in his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us. But he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever. And we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deep within. And it shows. End quote. That was written by Ray Ortland. And by the way, CCC is going to help sponsor a marriage conference with Ray Ortland next February. We'll get more details later on that. Verse 13. So, who is at Babylon? Who is likewise chosen? Sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. We're to enjoy the fruit of diligent relationships. She who is at Babylon. So according to historical evidence, uh, Peter was in Rome during the final years of his life. And Babylon is likely a disguised reference to Rome. Peter may have had reason to do that to protect the church and himself from Neronian persecution. Babylon expressed the fact that Christians in Rome felt themselves to be in exile in a in a foreign land, a city of luxury and sin and the oppressor of God's people. So it's she who is in Babylon. It might seem a a weird reference to say she for the church, but that's not unusual. Consider the church is called the bride of Christ. And in 2 John 1, we get the reference to the church as an elect lady and her children. Practically, Peter is sending greetings from a church in Rome to believers in what is now modern-day Turkey. 
So though water and land separate churches, they have a sense of kinship because of the commonality of being chosen in Christ. You may not know all the customs. You may not know the language. But there is a connection that we have with other believers that's unlike any other connection because of our common faith in Christ. You know, I still have connections with Russian and Bolivian and Guatemalan and Lebanese believers and other believers around the states. This is not because I have a good travel agent, but because I have a great Savior. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a fellowship that is God-given. But it has to be nurtured to enjoy the fruit fully. This is a beautiful reality for any gospel-believing church to another. And I appreciate the fellowship that we have with other churches in our community. I want to see it grow. And I appreciate the heart that you have for that. Churches from a different background, different denomination. I meet with other pastors of, in other denominations. And it's a wonderful fellowship to enjoy. We're not competing. We're in the kingdom together. Now, this gets very real and personal when he says, and so does Mark, my son, send you greetings. Hmm. Now, this seems like a harmless hello, but most think this is John Mark, who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. Mark left Paul and Barnabas during that trip. And then on a trip that followed, Paul did not want to include Mark. So Barnabas took him. Now, Peter would have certainly known of this experience with Mark. But he speaks of him now in a very affectionate term. My son. Acts 15 retells the story. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement Isn't that weird? A sharp disagreement amongst Christians? Wow. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Paul with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Fast forward to Paul's last letter that he wrote that we have in the New Testament. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, Luke alone is with me 
get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. So apparently, that prior offense had been forgiven, and now the work of the ministry was continuing with Mark. Now, it's interesting to me that we're not given too many details about this conflict. We're not really told who was at fault because some commentators will blame Paul and saying he was a real piece of work here. He was much too harsh. Others will say, well, Mark quit because he had a lame excuse. The fact is, we don't really know. And maybe that's the point. It doesn't matter in the long run. Because relationships in the body are worth the effort. Just like relationships in the family, they're worth the effort to work on. And blaming each other at the time isn't going to do any good. Yes, you should own your own stuff. I'm not saying that, that you can't do that. But in the end, there has to be enough forgiveness so that relationships are mended and the work can go on. The tools of forgiveness include kind words. The tools of forgiveness include not jumping to conclusions. The tools of forgiveness include willingness to do the hard work of reconciling. This builds community. And we all know this is not always the case. There are ways of relating that lower the trust, fracture relationships, and divide the community. One article I read about the rising violence among women, and by the way, this is not to just you know, point out women. This applies to men or women, but this just happened to be an article that I thought what they had to say was, uh, was germane to our topic. Anyway, it quoted Lauren Abrams, Abramson, who is a director of Community Conferencing Center, a Baltimore agency that resolves disputes through mediation. She said, gossip is a source, uh, as a source of violence is understudied and little understood. But time and again, when we bring the parties together, get them to talk and dig into what started it all, it invariably comes down to something somebody heard somebody else said. End quote. Sabella Arts, a researcher in bullying behavior and author of Sex, Power, and the Violent Schoolgirl, wrote about the dismantling of relationships and wrote, um, and speaking again of, of girls, and again, I don't mean to just harp on girls, it's not about that, all right? But I just thought this was interesting because it talked about what happens and I think it, it um, parallels churches and can. It says they will create factions, groups, or small cliques, and they will begin to character assassinate by creating rumors and gossip and building a consensus that a particular girl is in the wrong and deserves to be beaten and have retaliation. At the very least, this will show up as exclusion or shunning. A girl will come to school and suddenly find herself excluded from a group 
and that she once found she belonged to, and she won't be told what it's about, end quote. That happens in the church as well, right? I can remember it's been about 20 years ago. There was a small group within our church that apparently the topic was roast CCC. And it went on for a long time. And when I found out about it, I wanted to talk to the people in the group. Couldn't do that. They all ended up leaving. All right? (laughs) And this is the problem, is that you have issues with people, and they're unwilling to even have the hard conversation. And if it's a conversation, it's a, a lot of times a one-way conversation, and they're certainly not listening. And this brings disunity. People holding a grudge, harboring a disappointment, unwilling to talk, dismantling community person by person, unwilling to do the hard work to keep relationships together. Why? Because they were hurt, and they feel justified to hold on to that hurt or grudge or disappointment. And it's sad. It's really sad. Uh, We were talking in staff the other day about the back door of the church, and every pastor I talk to, they've got a, a back door, it seems, a mile wide. And a common theme, and not that churches aren't responsible, we are. And sometimes we blow it. So I'm not just putting it on everybody. But we live in a culture in which having the tough conversation, resolving differences with a conversation where you can be civil and talk to one another is very rare. Extremely rare. And it's a sad situation. The point is, to get where someone like Mark can go from being sideways with Paul to being loved and valued, there has to be forgiveness. There has to be listening. There has to be understanding. Tough conversations have to be made. And let me suggest that one of the biggest problems we have to overcome is our flesh. It's our flesh that tells our own version of the story to ourself. And it casts the other person as as guilty. We're prone to see ourselves as the victim. We project past hurts into present relationships. And we're often blind to our own escalation or the real cause of our hurt and anger. You know, I'd like to think that as a man my age, being a Christian for over five decades, and being a pastor, I have mastered the flesh. I'm over it. Newsflash. I haven't. I daily do battle with dying to self. Okay? So we all have this fleshly nature. You know what I love about this mention of Mark? I'm grateful that we have a record of apostles, of of miracle workers, 
who struggled like that as well with their flesh, with at least a temporary division. But I appreciate that they would do the work to resolve. So I guess what I'm begging of you is choose the fruit of deliberate relationships. If you think it's going to be easy, it's an expectation that is not real, okay? It's tough. And you know what I find? That often with the people that are the closest to me are the ones that I've had to struggle with. And we resolve things together, and the relationship is still intact. And we actually grow together when that happens. So we can choose to enjoy the fruit of deliberate relationships or wallow in the mud of our offenses. And you have the power to make a choice either way. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Turn to the person next to you and give a holy... No, you don't have to do that. (laughs) Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, I know it's easy to maybe get all bent out of shape about this being a kiss, but if you'll allow me some latitude, I know that there's other ways that we can appropriately give affection, but I just want to follow this trail for a little bit because I think it has some truth for us. You know, it, it was Jewish custom for a disciple to kiss his rabbi on the cheek and to lay his hands upon his shoulder. Remember Judas kissing Jesus in the garden? The kiss was supposed to be a sign of respect, welcome, greeting, which is what made the kiss of Judas so treacherous. Paul's letters frequently ended with the injunction for a holy kiss. Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5. Early church father Justin Martyr said, we salute one another with a kiss. At baptism in the early church, a person baptized kissed the baptizer. We should start doing this now. So I just want to throw that out. And they would also be kissed by the whole congregation as a sign of welcome into the household, into the the family of Christ. A newly ordained bishop was given the kiss in the Lord. So it was a, a gesture of sincere love, respect, and obviously unstained by any other motive. Unfortunately, the affectionate touch of another has been replaced in our society by a Facebook-like, an emoji, and even churches that are creating their own virtual avatar services online where I have my own avatar going to the service, a disembodied worship service. I don't think the direction we should be going in. It's the warm embrace, genuine affection of our Heavenly Father that leads us to trust in Him, run to Him, 
feel safe and repent. Listen, whether it's kissing or some other form of affection, do you find it makes you vulnerable? I think that's part of its power. Again, don't forget Judas with Jesus. But a kiss makes us vulnerable, I think, to even the wounds of evil. I mean, who have we been hurt by the most? I would suggest it's by those we kiss the most. A spouse. Our kids. Grandchildren. Church. Right? C.S. Lewis said this. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Lock it up safe in the coffin of your selfishness. End quote. Now listen, I'm not suggesting that those who've hurt you deeply, who take advantage of you, ought to be your best friend. Okay? But forgiveness is different than trust and being intimate with somebody. All right? We can draw that distinction. Forgiveness is our job, even if the person doesn't ask for it. Peter Hyatt, a pastor, wrote this. The most famous, famous story of Jesus ever told is about kissing. Anybody want to guess what story that is? We call it the story of the prodigal son. A better title might be the story of the prodigal father, the prodigal kisser. You know the story. The son takes his father's inheritance and spends it on hookers and unholy kisses. When he comes to his senses, he decides to return to his father. When the father sees his son from a great distance, the father runs to him. And before the son can say a word, the father grabs him, embraces him, and kisses him over and over again. It's at that point the boy crumbles and repents. He longs to be a son to his father, the prodigal kisser, end quote. We can greet one another with sincere affection and love because of the way this ends. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That is our foundation, not the way you respond to me. Not if I get my needs met. Not if I get from you what I want. Okay? If we operate that way, we start getting demanding. We start expecting people to act a certain way. I deserve this or that. And then it sullies the relationship. But we can greet one another with a genuine affection. Because Christ has given us peace. And we rest in him even in the midst of the messiness.
And boy, is it ever messy. Right? Your family's messy. Right? Your family's messy. Mine is. Okay? This morning, got dressed, walking out the door, and Janet said, oh, Kevin, don't wear that white coat. I said, honey, sorry, but I'm going to wear the white coat. She goes, it's not, it's not the right season. So I'm sitting on the front with my wife. And the Wubinaw girls all had white sweaters on in the first service. And I said to Janet, look, look at the color of sweaters they all have. All of those girls. She goes, yeah, girls. My wife has a tiger in her tank. I love her. It's messy. Doesn't always work the way we want it to work, right? But you're willing to do the hard work. And sometimes you get deeply hurt, right? But we keep coming back because we know this is where the life is. This is where the genuine fellowship can take place. It's not just in a family, but it's in a church as well. And we are in a society where we don't do that well. Because once you get hurt, I'm out of here. Once you offend me, I'm out of here. But there's something beautiful about people that work those things out. And boy, have we had our fill of it the last few years, haven't we? Election and COVID and everybody disagreeing about that and all this stuff going on, political climate. But the wonderful thing about a church is that the gospel unites us. Jesus Christ, the common relationship we have with him, unites us. And we can work through anything else, right? You don't have to agree with me on every little detail, but we have a commonality because of our relationship with Christ. That's why I can love a wife who doesn't like the way I dress. <laughs> and we can enjoy one another uh, and truly love one another even though there are differences and even though there's even conflict. So let's be willing to do the hard work, okay? Let's pray.